0: The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 23, Children of Pepe. In the year 2200 BCE, or thereabouts, Pepe II was reaching the end of his long and accomplished life. He was now nearly 70 years of age, and into his sixth decade on the throne. By the standards of ancient Egyptian life, this was an immense achievement and would not be replicated for centuries until the long reign of Ramesses II. Ancient Egyptian records traditionally give Pepe II a reign of 94 years, but this is not given much credence by modern historians. For one thing, the number gives Pepe a suspiciously round number of a 100 total years in his life. For another the average Egyptian life expectancy was around 40 to 45. Now of course, being a wealthy king with access to the royal physicians, the best food possible, and a generally comfortable lifestyle, Pepe certainly did live somewhat longer than the average Egyptian. But 50 to 60 years longer? I think not. Today, Egyptologists think his reign may have lasted around 65 years and this is the number I have gone with. For the ancient Egyptians, who, as I've said, generally lived into their forties, this was still a significant period of time. For Pepe and his kingdom, it was both a blessing and a curse. See, the problem was that Pepe II had now outlived a great many of his children. Many of his sons probably fathered when the king was between the ages of 14 and 20, would have been groomed to hold administrative and official roles. These sons were probably now dead, leaving a chronic shortage of capable men within the central court of the king. Of course, this wasn't devastating to the kingdom itself. Non-royal officials filled most of the main government positions, and the economy ran relatively smoothly under their guidance. But a government like that of the ancient Egyptians requires a strong leader to ensure that everyone moves in the same general direction. By the age of 70, Pepe II was no longer a strong leader. He was old, feeble, and probably did not fill many of his governing responsibilities. So the kingdom was running on something like autopilot. Or at least it would be if there hadn't been already a very strong current of change going through the society. Ever since episode 16 or so, we have seen the elite families of Egypt begin to take on more and more responsibilities in terms of administration and oversight. Their power increased as the kings gave them larger estates, and their status rose with the titles accorded to them. For some, wealth could be found in the administration of temples, particularly those dedicated to the state gods Re and Hathor. By the reign of Pepi II, temples up and down the Nile Valley were endowed with agricultural land to support their personnel. Now, we're not talking about huge commercial farms or anything, but small plots of five or six acres would be enough to feed a small group of priests throughout the year, and the kings regularly made donations of extra goods on festival occasions. So, if you were a nobleman living in, say, Abydos, you stood a reasonable chance of making a decent living by taking responsibility for local shrines and temple institutions. Abydos, in fact, is one of the most valuable sources of evidence we have for the domestic life of ancient Egyptians, particularly during this period and the First Intermediate Period, which is coming soon. At Abydos, mastaba tombs record the titles and positions of important officials telling us that men who were prominent in the royal administration had begun to take an increasing focus on burying themselves in their local provinces. This was different to the earlier generations, who had preferred to be buried at Memphis, the capital of the country. Now these provincial governors, called Kheri Tep, or Great Chief, were wealthier than their ancestors had been. And their tombs are more lavishly decorated. Their families were prestigious, and many elite daughters seem to have been sent to the king's harem, called the ipet. Within the harem, or harem, the daughters enjoyed royal favour and were probably able to promote their own families for consideration. As a consequence, the rural elite gained even more status and wealth. This whole process was part of a slow decentralization of governing power. Royal administrators began to see themselves as more closely connected to their local regions. Of course, this was a subconscious process for the most part, and they still made great effort to record themselves as royal officials and servants of the king. The public image of service before the ruler remained the same. But it's one thing to say that you serve a king, and another to actually follow through with all of your heart. The last years of Pepe II's reign were a time when the ruler's power, in general, was contracting. It became more localized, less universal, and possibly more ceremonial or figurehead. Now, of course, the biggest question in this is why. Why, after nearly 500 years of supreme royal authority, were the kings becoming less significant as a source of power and strength? The reasons are many, the reasons are varied, and they are continually debated by modern historians. The period which elapsed from around year 40 of Pepe II to the end of the First Intermediate Period, is easily one of the most murky and unclear and ill-defined of all periods in Egyptian history. But that shouldn't stop us from telling this story. The first reason for this process seems to be at least some form of external pressure, probably part of a changing climate in North Africa. Archaeological investigations have revealed that during this time period, particularly around 2200 BC, the Nile Delta seems to have become significantly drier for a period of time. This would have greatly reduced agricultural output, and left many families hungry. At the same time, the Sahara was shifting eastward, even encroaching on the city of Memphis where Pepi II lived. Many Nile communities were being affected by this process, and we should see climate change as a crucial factor in the declining power of the Egyptian kings. For one thing, their actual wealth was shrinking, and this restricted the range of activities which they could afford to undertake. Royal expeditions, for example, seemed to dry up during the later years of Pepe II. These expeditions were expensive, and it's doubtful the king could afford to send the food and resources required for such projects. Pepe's kingdom was not in serious trouble yet, but when you combine a shrinking economy with an elderly king who has outlived most of his trained children, difficulties will arise. Following this general economic depression within Egypt, competition over resources may have become a more significant problem. The local chieftains, or Kheri-Tep, may have been increasing their own wealth at the expense of the state, and the shrinking agricultural surplus meant many communities did not have as much to send to the king during the harvest period. This competition even went beyond Egypt's borders. Harkening back to episodes 20, 21, and 22, you may remember that the 6th dynasty rulers had been increasingly active within Nubia. The officials, Weni and Harkuf had led major expeditions deep into modern-day Sudan, trading with local princes, taking captives when necessary, and returning wealth to the king in Egypt. Late in Pepe II's reign, however, we see the Egyptians withdrawing from Nubia more and more. As a consequence the Nubians began to create their own independent kingdom, which today we call the Kerma culture. Its capital was located near the modern town of Kerma, hence the name. Here, a large mudbrick temple complex and a small royal palace attest to the presence of a local king independent of the Egyptians. This kingdom was not a threat to Egypt but it was a sign of the shrinking sphere of authority held by the II. Now, although they were new on the political scene, the Kerma culture had been developing slowly throughout the Old Kingdom, particularly in social terms. They had developed their own distinct pottery, quite separate from that used by the Egyptians. They don't seem to have had a writing system, and when the Kerma culture eventually developed into its most powerful form about a thousand years later, they began using Egyptian writing and Egyptian religious customs. During this early period, their focus seems to have been on defence and stability. The Nubians of Kerma were well situated for trade coming out of Egypt, as well as from the Sahara and the Ethiopian coast of the Red Sea. Their prosperity was probably what drew Egyptians like Harkuf and Weni to their lands. And while the failing power of Pepi II had allowed for an independent kingdom to emerge, these Nubians do not seem to have been overly aggressive or interested in expansion. That being said, a small fortified settlement was found on the island of Sa'i, about two hours' drive south of modern-day Kerma. The fortification of this island suggests that the local kingdom had taken its defence into serious consideration. Part of the motivation for this may have been the increasing migration of nomadic cattle herders leaving the Sahara. If the desert was expanding, then the regions which could support grazing and herding animals were disappearing as well. Nomadic groups were driven eastward into the Nile Valley, and this posed a threat to the Nubians and Egyptians living by the Great River. For one thing, their own agricultural output was shrinking, and they could ill afford new groups settling in the region. I suspect that these migrations also influenced the Egyptians to leave the region in favour of less difficult land in their own country. So let's recap briefly. Pepi II, now seventy years of age, was overseeing a kingdom that had shrunk both in territory and economy. The Sahara was expanding, reducing the fertility of the Nile Valley and Delta. As a result, local communities could not contribute as much of their produce to the king, reducing the wealth of the royal family and restricting their resources. Meanwhile, the provincial areas were focusing more on their own needs, with elite families taking a greater share of responsibility for their own communities. This was the situation throughout Egypt, when Pepi II finally passed into the realm of Osiris. He was buried at Saqqara, in a small pyramid just to the south of the tombs built by his predecessor Merenre and jedkare Izezi of Dynasty Five. It was a beautiful pyramid, despite its small size, with a lovely valley temple and causeway extending from the edge of the Saqqara Plateau. The artwork in Pepi's pyramid copied extensively from those at Abu Sir, particularly the pyramid of Sahure, whom we met in episode 11. There were scenes of Pepi's said festivals, of which he probably celebrated several. Around his pyramid were at least three other smaller ones, built for Pepi's most prominent queens. Their names were Neith, Iput, and Wedjepton. Of these three, Neith was most likely the mother of Pepi's successor, a man named Merenre II. Merenre II lived for only one or two years. His reign was unremarkable, and there is very little to say about it, except that, according to Herodotus, that magnificent Greek historian writing some 1,500 years later, Merenre was murdered. It's the sort of story that we do take with a grain of salt, but it is so specific that there may be a grain of truth to it. After all, we have already seen in episode eighteen that Teti, first king of dynasty sixteen, was probably murdered by a conspiracy of royal family members. Why not Merenre the second as well? Given the specificity of Herodotus's story, and how minor Merenre the second really was, I suspect there is some truth to it. What is certain is that the death of Merenre led to a long series of kings, about whom we know almost nothing. Indeed, the two dynasties which follow the 6th, dynasties 7 and 8, are so ephemeral that we know almost nothing about the kings except their names. Of these rulers, only one managed to build a small pyramid for his tomb. The rest are simply names on a list. Manetho, the Greek historian writing even later than Herodotus, described the period hyperbolically, saying that 70 kings ruled in just 70 days. While this is certainly an exaggeration, it gives you a sense of how little is known of these kings, and just how unsettled this period was. For all intents and purposes, the deaths of Pepi II were, and Merenre II, have brought us, at last, to the end of the old kingdom, and the beginning of the first intermediate period. This was a time of about a 150 years, in which the kingdom was gradually divided between two warring principalities, with several smaller players as well. The first intermediate period is one of the most interesting and exciting in Egyptian history, and it will consume at least the next two, possibly even three or four episodes of this podcast. I won't start it today, but will instead spend the next few minutes giving a final retrospective on the Old Kingdom, recapping some of its main features and the trajectory of Egyptian culture during this period. If you feel you've heard this material pretty recently, then feel free to end the episode here. If you do, we'll see you next time for the first intermediate period. Around 2,200 years before the start of the Common Era, the Old Kingdom reached the end of its 500-year tenure. But Egyptian history is now over a 1,000 years old, and in 23 episodes, this podcast has covered approximately 100,000 years of human development. It's been a wild ride, considering that I initially thought I might cover the whole Old Kingdom in about 10 episodes. How wrong I was. The emergence of the Egyptian kingdom around the year 3000 was one of the landmarks in human history. King Namer, or Menes was remembered by the Egyptians as the great founder of their kingdom. But the truth, of course, was more complex, spanning many thousands of years of cultural development. Slowly, kingdoms up and down the Nile Valley were absorbed, sometimes conquered, until the beginning of the First Dynasty saw a united land. The unification of Egypt was a slow process to be sure, and occasional breaks in civil war occurred. One of these, the war between Kasa Kemwi and Peribsen, might have given birth to the myth of Horus and Seth the two gods who fought for the kingship of Egypt. Kasa Kemwe, the winner, was the first Egyptian monarch to build a magnificent tomb complex for himself. But this was quickly outdone, when in the 3rd dynasty, the king Jediket Joser established a new monument in stone, the Step Pyramid. Egypt's Pyramid Age was born with this monument the first all-stone construction in human history. By the start of the 4th dynasty, the step Pyramid was developed into the True Pyramid, a magnificent effigy to the king and his unification with the sun god, Re. Of course, pyramid building was a cornerstone of Egyptian royal policy. And Khufu's magnificent Great Pyramid at Giza Established the largest single tomb construction in the world. It was a feat unparalleled before or since. And despite his reputation as something of a tyrant, Khufu is a name remembered for all time. Pyramid building was both a cultural practice and an economic one, and the Pyramid Age witnessed immense developments. In Egyptian social organisation. The development of large communities of workmen stimulated production of goods. The planning required to organise these projects probably also stimulated the growth of literacy, as more scribes were required to fill the many administrative responsibilities. Egyptian culture ballooned in the Old Kingdom, and the deities with whom we are most familiar began to appear as fully formed characters. Hathor, Ra, Horus, and Osiris led the pantheon of deities, each fulfilling a key role within both the natural world and the social outlook of the Egyptians themselves. In many respects, the Old Kingdom is the first golden age of Egyptian culture. It is a high-water mark of human social development and the Egyptians justifiably lay claim to being one of the earliest human cultures which still exist today. Contemporaries in Babylonia and Central Africa have disappeared, but Egyptian culture persists in many forms, and it is thanks to the achievements of the Old Kingdom that they do so. The rulers of the coming Middle and New Kingdoms Will look back to the Old Kingdom and draw inspiration from the achievements of their predecessors. It is an era of artistic achievement, military prowess, architectural splendour, and enormous cultural development. Truly, it is an age unlike anything that came before in human history. But the Old Kingdom is not the end of Egyptian history, it is merely the beginning of a legacy that will continue to shape the ongoing civilization. Though the kings of Dynasty VI are the last to really hold genuine authority over the two lands for another 200 years, the oncoming first intermediate period is simply a stepping stone on the path to even greater things. I look forward to the journey, and I hope you do too.